1: This is the language of a lockdown. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. The way we report the coronavirus outbreak, the way we all discuss it, has changed dramatically in the last few weeks. But what effect is it having on the news and on us? In this episode, we explore the explosion in words that, until relatively recently, barely crossed the pages of the papers... That's with Times data journalist Daniel Clark, who's been digging into the archives. Julia Samuel, a psychotherapist and author of This Too Shall Pass, explains the impact that all this grim news has on us and how we should react to it. And no, it doesn't involve oversharing online. Plus, we've got Ian Brunskill, assistant editor of The Times, on the way the paper has recalibrated its language in an attempt to be more constructive. I'd love to hear from you as well about the words that you're using more of that you perhaps have never used before. Unmute perhaps being one of them or mute depending on uh, whether or not you want to hear from the person you're video calling. Is it wine o'clock someone else suggested? Send us your suggestions redbox at thetimes.co.uk or tweet us at timesredbox. Also let us know what you think we should be discussing on the podcast and why not post a review on Apple or wherever you listen. Now of course. Language is really important at the best of times, and these are the worst of times. The language the government uses is particularly crucial. Matt Hancock, the health secretary, lost his temper during interviews this week as he made the point that the message to stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives is not just some incidental sloganeering. The clarity of that message is central to preventing the spread of a disease which could kill more people. The way the media covers the story matters too. When newspapers have previously described every minor squabble in a political party as a crisis or two people you've never heard of quitting jobs you didn't know they had as unprecedented, what do we do when a real unprecedented crisis hits? Make the font bigger? Let's start, first of all, with Daniel Clark, data journalist at The Times, who first started looking at the words that were suddenly coming to dominate, uh, if not the national conversation, certainly the conversation happening in the press. Daniel, explain, first of all, what you were looking for
2: and then what you found. I was just kind of looking for interesting trends. I, I had a theory that the kind of language that was being used in the national newspapers was... Was quite emotive, and obviously, at this time, it, the language you would expect to be emotive obviously, it's a huge pandemic and stuff. But I kind of wanted to see if that played out with the numbers. So, what I did was I contacted a company called Factiva, who have a huge database of uh, articles for a number of publications uh, well, thousands of publications all over the world. So, what I did was I looked at the UK national newspapers, I just started picking off a few phrases or terms that. I thought would crop up more in, in recent times. So I started off looking at the the government's kind of stay home, save lives, NHS phrase that they've been banding about recently. And the numbers were huge. It's split out into national newspaper articles containing these words or phrases. And I've got the numbers split out monthly. So things like stay home, obviously, has risen up to over 500 articles in the last month where it was averaging nine or 10 before. A similar story for save lives and a similar story for the NHS. So after that, that got me thinking about other words and phrases. So I started looking at things like panic, isolated, uh, ramp up, unprecedented. I, I saw a similar trend with all of those as well. For me,
1: the NHS one was the most striking because that is obviously a phrase which appears an awful lot. And it's gone from one or 2,000 mentions a month to over 5,000.
2: Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well. And you can actually see in the charts, you can see the little bumps that happen around the time of an election. There was a little spike in 2016, obviously, because of the EU referendum. So that one was particularly interesting because I I was expecting a slight jump, but I wasn't expecting anywhere anywhere near that much.
1: Similarly, and this is probably not a surprise, but it also goes to show just how grim the news is. The word deaths. Clearly newspapers report deaths all the time, but that's gone from about a thousand a month to well over three thousand. Depressingly, that's probably just gonna get worse.
2: I had a look at the figures for March, obviously, because that was the last four month we have. But I I did have a look for April and it looks like that's gonna that's gonna rise again this month, so as you say, it's kind of a, a grim time for reporting.
1: A couple of things that stuck out for me. Words like alone did sort of a big spike of that in 2016 and uncertainty. I assume that they're both Brexit related, sort of Britain going it alone rather than us all sitting alone at home.
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right. So obviously it's, it's not a perfect analysis as we're looking for phrases and words that might be picked up in different contexts. But like you say, I, I find that really interesting, though, that there was there was also panic was quite high in 2016 recession was quite high in 2016 so we're seeing quite similar kind of language used that that was being used around the time of the referendum
1: anyone who th- say they saw this coming would only have to look at the the fact that words like pandemic were getting what, a few dozen mentions a month previously and then now it's sort of off the charts over
2: 6000 mentions things like that have just completely gone through the roof
1: And I think one of the things that as journalists we're going to have to sort of wrestle with is... You know, when phrases like unprecedented are going through, we know now that this is all unprecedented. You know, the, the sort of, in a way, the rhetoric has to keep sort of ratcheting up to try and point out that, yes, it was really dramatic two weeks ago, but it's even more dramatic now. You wonder where the phrase is going to come from next. The problem is, if you're
2: using unprecedented with every single news story you're putting out there, then kind of where do you go from there?
1: Yeah, no, I remember when I first started out as a reporter being told, you know, don't put controversial in an intro <laughs> because. Uh, if it really is controversial, readers can work it out for themselves. There is that sort of sense of, you know, you can't just put shocking in the intro of every news story, even though at the moment pretty much every news story is shocking.
2: We see that as well with the with the term crisis. That, that's gone through the roof and, and as well as ramp up, which I thought was quite interesting. But yeah, like you said, that you need somewhere to go from that really. Well, hopefully, along with every
1: other chart that we're currently obsessed with studying, at some point we'll start to see some of these grim words disappear from the newspapers and some nice ones like holiday and pub open will um, <laughs> start start appearing instead Daniel Clark there so what impact is all this grim news having on us Julia Samuel is a psychotherapist specializing in grief she says the problem with a crisis like this is it is so vast that we struggle to get a grip on it
3: we try and curate and have control and make meaning of any of the situations that we face, and we do that by storytelling, by using a narrative, sometimes can give us a full sense of control, and sometimes it can actually give us an understanding and an agency that's very useful, because otherwise it's sort of, the story is sort of just lots of feelings and words in our body that we don't know what to do with. So it's an incredibly Important part of being human, which I'm sure you know sort of far better than me because it's your job. <laughs> um, and obviously, the language we use is imbued with huge amounts of emotion. So, our mind and body are completely interconnected. So, every thought that you have has a physiological component that affects you. And then every feeling that you have gives rise to a thought. So, the two affect each other. I think, particularly in journalism, so we know from research that you get emotional contagion and hits of stress if you permanently hit the news feeds when, they, when it's bad news. There was a big research study on Facebook that researched 650,000 users. And when they saw pandemic type story, they were negatively affected. And when they saw a happy story, they were positively affected. So what we read has a huge impact on our mood. But also there's a, a hook to it that, that, you know, like we like clickbait, but it is a, it is a, a connection that you, you get scared and then you want to understand what is making you scared and want to make sense of it. So you get hooked to read more news. So it sets up that quite negative cycle. On the one hand, the thing that the pandemic is forcing us to do is face a reality which has always been there, which is that we're mortal, <laughs> you know, that we're going to die and that we use lots of words to disguise death, like passed away or lost. And so by using the death word, from my point of view, is useful because we're being forced to face a reality that we kind of have a magical thinking. If I don't think about it, if I don't talk about it, it isn't going to happen to me. And actually, I think people are having conversations now about death, about advanced decision-making and what they want if they died which I think they should have been having years ago because I think an examined death is as important as an examined life because we're much less frightened if we have faced those things.
1: And I suppose because everyone is in that position at the moment of being sort of gripped by this, it's, this is a totally shared experience. So people are having those conversations about death now that they probably have never done.
3: From my, my perspective, not from I mean, not that you want to kind of false goods out of bads, But I think they're important conversations to be having and I think they enable you to navigate and manage the complexity of living with much more agency and confidence. Because I think what you don't face and what you don't think about is much more frightening and does you more harm.
1: One thing that I'm interested in asking you about is the extent to which when there's something like this uh, pandemic and there's so many unknowns, uh, which makes it much more frightening. And because we look to positions of authority, people in positions of authority to have all the answers and solve it all, did we then become obsessed with the daily death toll and reading up on this and people feel like they're becoming experts in PPE usage or vaccine development technologies or whatever it might be, in some way think, well, if I get on top of all of the this information, then I'll be able to help and then it will all be okay. Is that... A- that's just a sort of sort of layman's feeling as to what's going on.
3: Absolutely right. I mean, I think particularly in the 21st century that we have this false sense of control, that we can influence birth and death, and that information is the thing that gives us the edge on every other species, which is true to a great extent. And that if we see someone walking towards us as a pathogen, which I think we do now in Sainsbury's queues and in the park, you kind of want to have the information to be able to calm you down. And so in some senses, I think it's useful and helpful. And in other senses, I think it gives you a false sense of agency when fundamentally we just don't know stuff. (laughs) We don't don't know so much.
1: And also, I suppose, if you're a member of the public, if you like, even not a journalist, but someone who there's actually no benefit to the fight uh, against coronavirus of an individual becoming very clued up on, uh, the science behind it or, or whatever it might be. But it, it might, it, it basically, all it's really doing is making them feel better, which is there's no necessarily any harm in no that. No bad thing. But it, it's not of any no. help to the government that there's now a load of sort of armchair epidemiologists on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> all they're really doing is trying to make themselves feel better, sort of, you know, gathering more information, shouting at other people on social media, because you want to feel like you're doing something, particularly at the moment when so many of us are just sort of stuck at home Feeling we're powerless, powerless, exactly. Yeah,
3: so I mean, I think we want to find some sense of our own potency. And I, one of the things I was interested in my clients, and I think it was true um, in vast numbers, was that when Boris Johnson got ill, people were really properly worried. It's like almost like your father is ill, Do you know, that if your leader is ill, and you know, lots of my clients had sleepless nights, lots of People were kind of checking news feeds all the time. And then the relief they felt that he didn't die, that he came out of hospital, and the fear that surged when they learned that he actually had a 50-50 chance of survival was fascinating, I thought, as a when we think we're in charge of our own lives. But actually, we've invested a huge amount of trust in the government to lead us. And they are in charge in a way that I don't think we've let them be in charge probably for decades.
1: And I, and I suppose so often with Politics. None sort of this sort of covering it is. Everyone thinks oh, I could do a better job than that. Oh, you know, if only they get out of yeah. the way. And this is true of basically it's true of every politician. It's true of quite a lot of journalists as well. And actually, it's suddenly being confronted with an unsolvable thing, where there are only bad options and outcomes. Yeah. Uh, uh, you you sort of invest. You think well. You really hope that the grown ups know what they're doing in this situation. And then it turns. <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when you're right, when the father figure is is unavailable for the fight, then then it sort of really hit people.
3: The, the other thing that I'm interested about is use of language and promiscuous honesty about what you're feeling, sort of saying it out in the world, in the thinking that this is in some way going to release you to be more powerful or be acknowledged, when really those are the conversations you should only really be having in your own home with people that matter to you most, that believe you and listen to you. you know, so using the words pandemic, death, panic, because you want to get attention, and you kind of think you you want to kind of Marie Kondo order out of what is chaotic and make it into tidy kind of soldiers that are going to kind of make you more powerful. I think is a sort of paradox which is crazy making.
1: Do you mean specifically on sort of social media that people posting yeah. are talking about their own personal anxieties and fears? Does that you' yeah. saying that doesn't really help if you poke you know talking about that stuff out? No
3: because no one's listening,
1: yeah <laughs> the,
3: the point of using language and expression expressing your fears is that you you put them out there, so somebody receives them, makes sense of them, acknowledges what you feel, says it back to you, so you feel calmer, so you feel, oh right, I'm heard. now I can make sense of it, now I don't have to shout, now I can kind of go a next step in what I'm thinking and feeling. By just spewing it out and using those very igniting words, it just incites your own fear more because no one all cares or gives a shit, basically.
1: (laughs) And actually quite often what you might end up getting is a load of other people saying, oh, you're totally right to be frightened. This is awful. You know, God knows how we're going to get out of this. Or
3: that you're an absolute half-wit idiot you're wrong, get back in your baskets. I mean, you're, you're, you're not going to get your need met.
1: And what about, because I know you've done a lot of work in sort of paediatrics and, and children, how should we be discussing, do we need to discuss with I mean, children are sort of aware of what is going on and they're sort of, you know, if nothing else, they're slightly confused about why their parents are at home all day and why they're not at school. <laughs> but do we need to be discussing things with children We should we be careful about how we discuss things in front of children?
3: I think the language we use really matters with children because they have a lot of magical thinking like we do as adults. But I think children need the same truth as adults, but in age appropriate language, because they will have had heard half, you know, it's all anyone's talking about. So they will have heard all the conversations. If they're teenagers, of course, they're on social media anyway, so that we need to give them the information. And well, first of all, I think you check what they've understood, what sense do they make of it? And what are their worries? And then you tell them honestly and respond to those and you, that's for all ages you know for even very young children because they pick it up from your your body language and they know something's going on so you need to give them a narrative that is truthful that they can make sense of because what they make up is much more frightening than the truth
1: just finally one of the things which is pretty unique to this crisis to use another one of those terms it is a crisis it is a crisis it is a is I'm not I'm not trying to play down it um, it's not a crisis um, but normally in a time of crisis normally at least a personal crisis you would surround yourself with your loved ones and look yeah. to them for support and obviously one of the impacts of this particular crisis is that we can't be with all of our loved ones whether that's friends or families or colleagues or whatever it might be which makes this a really tough thing for everyone to get through
3: and it's particularly true of death your father's died on a ventilator in a hospital you were not allowed to be with them you can't see the body you know the first thing everybody needs is love and connection to others that's the thing that enables you to survive something so difficult so it does really turn up the volume of the intensity of the of the pain of the psychological pain and the term i use is living losses that we we've lost a huge amount and the, and the experience that we have is is grief, but it's from living losses as well as death. So it's a very psychologically very difficult time. And the WHA talks about that the second pandemic is going to be a psychological one because of the impact of this connection. You know, the thing that enables people to survive unbearable losses is, is the love and connection to others. And I think, you know, using phones and Zoom. Is far better than nothing, and I think it goes a long way to, to connect people. But it is still not the same.
1: Yeah, it's not the same. I mean, I've I've had conversations with my eighty-eight-year-old grand. She's now got a Facebook portal, and it's mu- it is much nicer. She clearly is enjoys she? it. Yes, um, we've well under under Very some impressed. duress. Uh, initially, yes. but she clearly now likes it, and she's you know, and she's dialing out and all of that, but, and it's but it's it's not the same as having a conversation. We can have a hug at the no. end, and when you say goodbye, that's no. the, that's the. And big she makes difference. a cup
3: of tea, and you sit in the chair she's always sat in, and
1: exactly, and you feel get,
3: that kind of familiarity, and
1: you don't get cake on Zoom. That's the problem. That's the it's uh, <laughs> <that's> a <laughs> yeah, big difference. That
3: is the big thing. And so just that
1: you lose. Just looking ahead, what should we all be doing? Whether it's I don't know individual or even journalists about sort of trying to slightly future-proof to avoid that sort of mental health crisis that comes later?
3: Well, I think the sooner you begin to kind of take seriously your own anxiety levels and doing the active things that um, help regulate your system, the better. And often people want the sort of magic pill that fits the size of the crisis, but actually it's very small things that really make a difference. So exercising every day brings down your levels of anxiety. Even calming your breathing for five minutes a day, breathing in for seven and out for 11 regulates your system. Having a new kind of structure that isn't a police state, but is a sort of new structure in your new normal helps you feel less chaotic. Connecting with yourself and connecting other people is vital and doing things that intentionally calm you and soothe you makes a difference so if you think of yourself as a a system that everything you drink that you eat that you read that you listen to who you see has an inf- an impact on your mood so kind of be mindful about what you're doing with yourself if you want yourself to be resilient and robust and be able to kind of navigate the waves if you like rather than be brittle and hold against them when they're much more likely to break you
1: Still to come, how is the language in the Times changing and what does it mean for reporting on normal news?
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. In a given month, over 70%
1: of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airports. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: It's a strange time to be a journalist right now. Normally, it's a very personable trade, chatting to contacts and colleagues, uh, not least if you're a political journalist, when you basically spend all day loitering in corners, uh, hoping to gossip with people who shouldn't be gossiping with you. Uh, Now, though, there's just a handful of people in the news building in London producing The Times, uh, while most reporters work from home, trying to find the words to carefully describe the indescribable. So I'm joined now by Ian Brunskill, the assistant editor of the Times. Uh, and I have to say, Ian, you're the guardian of language and the s- famous Times style guide. You email us every week telling us to stop using clichés and be careful with numbers. Uh, but the problem with this extraordinary story is there are an awful lot of clichés and an awful lot of numbers.
4: I mean, I think on the on the numbers, we, we've in fact been doing, doing quite well, I'd say. We've not been getting them significantly wrong we've also i think been taking care about how we present them that we've not been looking for the worst number every day we've not been finding taking every rise in the daily death toll as a as a terrifying new spike and every slight fall in it as a glimmer of hope, which is certainly what some people have been doing. And I think all that does is it disorientates readers. What I think we can do here if we're reporting is, is try to give context, try to put numbers into into proper context and so not just to use them as headlines. You can headline a piece that, I don't know, one in five people is will die of whatever, or you can headline on the fact that four or four in five people will survive. I mean, it's, it's that sort of thinking that I hope we're doing.
1: Do you think that not just the Times but all newspapers in reporting has had to find a new vocabulary when I mean, the word unprecedented is one of the ones which has sort of gone through the roof in terms of usage. But everything is unprecedented. But we used to describe, you know, two ministers that no one's heard of resigning as unprecedented, which which now sort of pales into comparison. We're sort of working on a completely different scale to, I mean, apart from a, a sort of massive terror attack. And even then, the sort of numbers of people involved is much smaller. We don't normally report on anything on this scale. So we can't keep ratcheting the language up.
4: No, I mean, I think what it's done, actually, in a way, is vindicate, actually, the kind of emails that you that you were mentioning. Because in, in the past, we've had conversations in, internally around the paper and so on that you can't describe minor difficulties for the SNP or something as a, as a crisis. Or if you're going to, then what are you going to describe a, a real crisis as? And crisis is one of those words. I mean, it's it, it's a newspaper cliche, and we try very, very hard to keep it out. But suddenly we are in a crisis and it seems entirely reasonable to describe it as such. And so we have been. And I think that's that—that's a, a, a cliche that suddenly stopped being a cliche. It's a cliche that suddenly acquired some some content. I mean, I think in, in terms of other language, the, the kind of things that I think, again, you don't want to be doing, which are cliches, which I hope we've pretty much avoided describing this always as you know, as... as a lethal infection or a killer virus or a deadly bug or something there are again there are publications which will always do that those are the the new cliches if you like around around this discussion um we've also i think learnt lots of lots of strange new words that we we now quite happily bandy about like furlough and lockdown and proning and all of these things that that suddenly become concepts that, that we understand had they appeared in the past i think we might have tried to to Ban them as jargon, but they're just the terms in which the conversation's being conducted. And one of the key thing in the The Times style guide, which which we all try to follow, is that the Times must use the language of its readers, and that's what we're doing in talking about about, about these slightly strange new things that suddenly are, are quite familiar to everybody.
1: How do you think papers can avoid? You always need to sort of report it properly, but rather than just talking about the doom and gloom, I know one of the things The Times is trying to do is more constructive news, which is a sort of slightly Cheesy sort of name for it, but just explain what what constructive news tries to do.
4: I, mean, I think it's, it's important that, that people grasp what, what, what it isn't. It's not the kind of thing that you know, the newsreader Martin Lewis famously wanted, which was essentially just more cheerful stories. Really, I mean, that tends to translate into into happy stories about kittens and things. It's, it's not. It's, it's not that. You're right. The description constructive news is, is is a bit cheesy. The alternative, I'm not sure it's much better that that people use sometimes is solutions-based journalism um, and it's I, I think it probably isn't better than your, <laughs> I think you, you, your response just made that clear I, I think I knew that even as I said it I think
1: I knew that it, it sounds um, like one of the all... things you get in private eye sort of solutions-based solutions based
4: solutions <laughs> exactly but it, I think that's what the BBC likes to refer to it as for instance solutions based journalism but I mean what it all it really means is that you look at simply in reporting things that that do balance that um that kind of gloom. We've concentrated on proning and, and you know, a process that appears to be having some success in dealing with this. You've got the chap, a 100-year-old, who's doing his fundraising and so on. We launched our own charity appeal element of this. So you, you're giving readers the, the sense that something can be done about this, that it's not all just hopeless. I think local papers actually done not quite a good job on this. I do some work with with um, trainees at a place called News Associates in, in, in Twickenham, and, and the students there produce a, an edition of a Effectively, a local newspaper, a digital local newspaper called Southwest Londoner. And the last edition of that was full of essentially what was constructive news. They'd all got out into the community and they'd found greengrocers who were operating delivery services and libraries that were finding a, a way of providing library services to people who couldn't visit the library by creating virtual sort of reading groups and so on. I mean, they were just interesting little bits of initiative. And I think it's, it's to make sure that you you do report things like that while also giving the bigger picture. and. You know, making quite clear that the bigger picture may 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 be bad. It's not a matter of of, of trying to obscure that or to say of, of offering false positives, as it were, false hopes. Just finally, how do you think the
1: way that newspapers report less significant events in future, as and when this passes, and I mean, Lord knows when this won't be the front page story of every newspaper. But do you think this will change the way that we approach news? That the the, the language that we use will will be different. Or we would just fall back as our well, old ways?
4: I, I, I suspect there may be a certain amount of falling back goes on, I think. Politics has been slightly depersonalised, I think, through this. We're much happier talking about policy and about the NHS and so on. And while well, there are bits of personalisation about whose fault it is and who's telling the truth and who's not and who's falling out with whom and so on, There's been rather less of that, I think. And I think one senses perhaps slightly less public appetite for that as well, just because people are more worried about what happens. But I think at the end of it, there will be an inquiry or whatever, but we'll be holding people to account, I think, for the the failings that there have been in this and so on, and for the decisions that were taken that were wrong and so on, I think. So in that sense, I think we'll revert to something that feels much more like political journalism as, as we recognise it. One, one thing that I hope we've managed to do during this is I think that we, we've done, one of the more useful things we've done has been to be a bit more analytical, not just to re- report every every sort of twist and turn of this, but to actually step back and do quite, quite big thinking pieces about either about how the virus works or about how it's being tackled or what the world's going to look like geopolitically after this, which Catherine Philp did. I think it may be that we, we do a bit more of that and a bit less feeling that you have to grab hold of every development and, and, and get it into the paper in the way that there hasn't been a lot of point in doing it. It's, it's drawn some useful editing lessons, I think, in just how you approach big stories. Whether it'll change what happens when there's no news um, and you still have to fill the paper, that will be the question.
1: Oh, for a time when there was no news. Uh, Ian Bunskill, thanks very much. Well, that's all we've got time for for this episode. Do stay in touch with us. Email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen so you don't miss any future episodes. And you can sign up to my morning email trying to make sense on what on earth is going on. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50